Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another week, another Monday, we were, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Genesis. Uh, we are in chapter 45. We are in the middle of this great epic that is the story of Joseph. There, there have been so many things to talk about, and there will continue to be many more things to talk about. But for all of the things that we have talked about... <laughs> I don't know if there's any more important subject matter than that of this evening, chapter 45. Um, My dear friends, as we move out of a study of chapter 44 and the theme of repentance, we do so with an eye towards the towering theme of forgiveness as exemplified by Joseph in this chapter. You know, arguably no character in the drama of the book of Genesis better illustrates the fundamentals of forgiveness than Joseph. And really no chapter more clearly defines and describes the essentials of forgiveness than that of chapter 45. So I would really elevate chapter 45 as the chapter in the epic of Joseph that we ought to pay close attention to. And certainly we should say with that (laughs) in the light of chapter 44, right? Because you can't understand chapter 45 without chapter 44 and how Joseph brought about his brothers to their repentance. So, why? And how can we say uh, what we've said about chapter 45? Well, let us remember that those years which Joseph spent in slavery and prison could have been the occasion for a slow burn that might have ignited into an explosion of anger at the sight of his brothers, right? Do you not agree? How angry Joseph could have been with God for getting him into such a situation. But Joseph recognized that God was with him, with him in his sufferings, and that these were from the loving hand of a sovereign God. We've talked about God's sovereignty, and I think we we will continue to talk about God's sovereignty, right? Uh, But maybe most of all, Joseph could have been angry with his brothers, who had callously sold him into slavery, and and maybe callously is too uh, soft of a word. So the high point of Joseph's relationships with his brothers really does come to us in chapter 45, because it is here that there is a reconciliation brought about between them. And of course, this was made possible on the brothers' part by their genuine repentance, regretting their sin, of course, with regard to Joseph, and reversing their actions when a similar situation was presented with regard to Benjamin. This is what we talked about last time. But on Joseph's part, reconciliation was achieved through his sincere and total forgiveness of his brothers for the evil they had committed against him. You know, maybe for many of us, myself included, we can forget that forgiveness is a vital part of the Christian experience and really quintessential, we could say, in terms of our our relationship with God, right? What is it that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 14 to 15? For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Uh, we also see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32, that forgiveness is also an essential part of our responsibility towards others, right? Uh, what does St. Paul say? But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So that's the great challenge before us when, it, uh, when we think about forgiveness, that we would forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. So something to be thinking about as we read these verses from chapter 45. And with that, let us turn our attention to chapter 45 if you want to open up your Bibles. And we will go ahead and start with verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Now, it may appear at first glance that Joseph simply was overcome by his emotions so that he was compelled to disclose his identity. But brothers and sisters, we have already talked about this, right? And why this was probably not the case. Because even when his emotions did involuntarily emerge on more than one occasion, what did Joseph do? He simply left the presence of his brothers, wept, and returned, right? We, we read about that in chapter 43. Here, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers because, again, they had evidenced real repentance, which made real reconciliation possible. So now that it was time to reveal himself, Joseph wished this to be done alone. I suppose it was in order to deal with the matter of the sin of his brothers in maybe the most strict privacy, huh? Of course, as we read in uh, verse 2, because his emotions were so great, God would allow others to hear it, and certainly that would have its impact. All right, let us turn to verses 3 to 15, and pay close attention to how Moses describes Joseph's famous speech to his brothers. Last week, we were talking about the great speech of Judah. Well, here we are now. We have another great speech in Joseph. So we read in verses 3 and following, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Wow! How about that? A father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
Make haste and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and and of all that you have seen. Make haste and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. All right. (laughs) Let us uh, hit the pause button there. Put yourselves in the sandals of these brothers for a moment. huh? I mean... They had been treated graciously by Joseph, given the hospitality of his home and his table and and bountiful provision for their families back in Canaan. Then they were stopped and searched, each of them being found with their money in their sack and, and Benjamin with Joseph's cup and his possessions, all that we talked about in chapters 43 and 44, right? Their guilt was acknowledged and all were willing to remain as Joseph's slaves. But Joseph refused to detain any except Benjamin, the guilty party. Judah then made an impassioned appeal for mercy on his aged father, offering himself in place of Benjamin. It is at this point, my friends, that chapter 45 begins. So Judah and his brothers anxiously await a verdict from Joseph, one that, of course, will affect the course of their lives. And without knowing who Joseph is or what he intended to do, the brothers saw this prime minister, this vizier, send everyone out of the room. They could perhaps see the tears flowing down his cheeks and his chest heaving with emotion. But what was the source of this great emotion? Was it anger, which would lead to further trouble? I mean, they're probably thinking to themselves, how could it be otherwise, right? If they thought the worst had come, it had not. Not in their minds. For now this Egyptian blurted out in their own tongue, I am Joseph. And take note of that, right? It wasn't in this Egyptian tongue, but in their native tongue, I am Joseph. Why could have this news, I am Joseph, brought them no relief? but only new avenues of anxiety. I mean, it was bad enough to stand before a powerful Egyptian governor who was, who was angered at, at the theft of a cup, but to realize that he was their brother whom they sold into slavery, that was too much for them. I mean, before they at least had a hope that this judge would be impartial and that mercy might motivate him to accept their appeal, but now their judge must surely be their enemy, whom they had unjustly condemned. I mean, how could they hope for better treatment from him? No wonder that we read in verse 3, they were petrified. Fear and guilt were written on their faces, huh? And their silence confirmed this 
to Joseph. They had nothing more to say. No more appeals left. No more hope for mercy. Every word recorded in the first 15 verses of chapter 45 is spoken by Joseph because his brothers were probably speechless. (laughs) Not until Joseph had demonstrated that he had forgiven them and loved them did they speak. And what can we say about Joseph's words? Joseph's first words declared his identity, followed quickly by an indication of concern about his father. The thought of Jacob's grief was unbearable to Joseph as well as to the rest, but he also cared for his brothers. Oh, they must have shrunk back from him in horror. But yet Joseph does what? He asks them to draw near. So something was going on there, right? He sees this probably horror on their face, and he asks them to draw near. I pray you draw near. Nowhere in this chapter is the sin of his brothers minimized. At the very outset, Joseph identified the treatment they had given him as sinful. You see, forgiveness does not seek to minimize sin, but to neutralize it, disarm it. We must remember, though, that they have already come to the point of recognizing their actions of sin and repentance of it. This is why Joseph now speaks up. So since they have come to recognize the magnitude of their sin, Joseph need not belabor that point. The stress instead falls upon the totality of the forgiveness he has given them. Joseph's words are filled with hope and encouragement. Verses 5 to 8 assure these men that their sin had not thwarted the purposes of God. You sold me, Joseph said, but God sent me. Joseph also said. Joseph says, your purpose was to destroy. God's purpose was to save. You see, my friends, men may sin by attempting to do what is unacceptable to God, while at the same time, they are accomplishing what God has purposed. Yeah, this is a great mystery, the sovereignty and providential ways of God, but a mystery that has a key to interpret it in what but the cross, and Christ on the cross. So salvation, not destruction, was the purpose of God and what had happened. How then could Joseph even consider doing to his brothers what they had feared? Brothers and sisters, as we read in this narrative, clearly Joseph was destined to go to Egypt where he would be the instrument by which Israel would be spared as a remnant and which later be kept alive by a great deliverance. The great deliverance that we know as the great exodus. In the final analysis, what we are to understand here is that it was not his brothers who were responsible for for sending Joseph to Egypt, but God, for the purposes of bringing about their salvation. That's the great paradox of God. The very thing that you think works against God, God will use for For his greater glory. Now, in verses 9 to 13, Joseph's explanation of all that had happened and God's reason for it is followed by an exhortation to return quickly to the land of Canaan to get their father, their families, and their flocks and return to Egypt. Now, in these verses, there is a noticeable emphasis upon the glory 
and splendor which Joseph had attained in Egypt. And I suppose for some of us, this appears to be out of character for Joseph, who has previously been marked by modesty and humility, right? I mean, why would he now flaunt his position before his brothers? Well, there are several things going on here. Uh, First, as many Old Testament biblical scholars point out, the glory which Joseph now possesses would serve yet to encourage his brothers, right? Who are guilt-ridden for the wicked deed they committed against him by selling him out as a slave. So Joseph here would, would be reminding them that his humiliation and suffering were but again a means to his promotion and exaltation. Second, and on the heels of that, we could say that it would comfort Jacob and assure him of Joseph's ability to provide for the entire family during the famine. And finally, could we not say that it was a glory which Joseph desired to share unselfishly with his brothers? There's nothing in discontinuity with anything we've already talked about here. Once we interpret these passages and these verses in the light of who Joseph is, we ought to see this as something more. He desires to share all of his glory with those closest to him. And here, is he not a prototype of Christ himself who desires to share all his glory? Now, what about the Pharaoh and all of this? Well, let us read here, oh, uh, verses 16 to 20. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. And do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. (laughs) Wow, that was Pharaoh to Joseph. So, Pharaoh had received the report that there was a reunion between Joseph and his brothers. Here, we almost expect Pharaoh to be pleased, but still such a response would have to be unusual, right? I mean, we know that Hebrews were not well thought of by Egyptians. If Pharaoh knew the specifics of how Joseph had come to Egypt, he would certainly not have any warm feelings towards his brothers. Why is this? Well, clearly the Pharaoh had the greatest respect for Joseph. Joseph had virtually saved his kingdom and and would greatly enhance his position in Egypt. So in the end, why all of this benevolence, anything that pleased Joseph was going to please the Pharaoh? Remember, this man saved his life, right? All right, so we read in verses 21 to 24, Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And to his father he sent his followers 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. (laughs) Do not quarrel on the journey. You know, Joseph had good reason 
for supposing that his brothers might quarrel on the journey home, right? I mean, not long before this, he had overheard a conversation which they did not think he could possibly understand. When they then said to one another back in Genesis chapter 42, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And also, although they were forgiven, he didn't want them to face the temptation to try to assess the precise measure of guilt of each person because this ultimately is what they had done before. He saw this as profitless. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't quarrel. Your trip would be a much happier one if you focused upon the grace you've received and not the guilt before the grace. And oh, is there a lesson for us there. All right, and we wrap up this chapter, verses 25 to 28. Then they went up from Egypt and come to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told them, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Brothers and sisters, imagine what Jacob must be thinking. We just made a point to step into the shoes of the brothers. Well, now let us step into the shoes of Jacob. And what he must have been thinking when he heard those words, Joseph is alive. Probably impossible to believe, right? I mean, how could this be true? Hadn't his sons assured him that Joseph had died? Wasn't the evidence so compelling? I mean, Jacob was old, but he was far from senile. For him, things just didn't add up. But in the end, all of the evidence led to the conclusion that Joseph was indeed alive. Oh, how the broken spirit of Jacob must have immediately been revived, right? He now yearned to see his son before his death. All that Jacob had feared, all that was going against him, had suddenly appeared in its true light. It was the hand of God in his life, sparing him from the physical and spiritual death of Canaan by preparing a place for him in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, take stock of that point. It's not that God isn't merciful. It's that we don't ask God to be merciful to us. I think Jacob here received that mercy. And what is the great fruit of mercy but forgiveness? Earlier I spoke of forgiveness as the key word of this chapter. If we are to be forgiving, we must identify what forgiveness is all about. If you were to go into the Old Testament, and for that matter, New Testament, while several Greek and Hebrew words are employed to convey forgiveness, essentially forgiveness means to release or to set free. Now, in the Old Testament, the word forgiveness is used to speak of the cancellation of a debt or of release from a legal obligation. In general, we could say that forgiveness is a conscious decision on the part of the offended party to release the offender from the penalty and the guilt of the, of the offense committed. And so this release not only frees the offender from guilt and punishment, 
but it also frees, and this is what I've highlighted in, in the past, it also frees the forgiver of anger and bitterness. Now here's the thing. On one level, forgiveness is not free. Sin must always have a price that is paid. What do I mean there? If a banker pardons a loan, it means that the borrower does not have to repay his debt, right? But it also means that the lender suffers the loss of the money loaned and not repaid. So if society pardons a criminal, it means that society suffers the consequences of the criminal's act, not the criminal. If I go to your house and, and break a vase and you forgive me for my error, you suffer the loss of the vase, not I. So this definition of forgiveness describes the pardon which God offers to men through the cross of Jesus Christ. All men have sinned against God and deserve the penalty of eternal destruction. But what do we read in John 3:16? God loved us and sent his son to die for our sins so that we might have eternal life. God did not overlook our sins, but he bore the penalty for them. This is genuine forgiveness. What's more, we are called to share in such forgiveness. Mark chapter 2 verse 7, forgiveness is a divine act. Earlier I said forgiveness is not free. Within the context of <laughs> what Jesus did on the cross, yeah. But in how we go about choosing for Christ, yeah, it comes out of our free will, but a freedom that is always conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot forgive on our own. We've all said it. It is impossible to forgive that sin, right? Exactly. That's the point. But in God, all things are possible. That's why Mark says what he says. Forgiveness is a divine act. By God's grace, by God's sheer gratuity, can we forgive those who have offended us? And this is what we pray for the grace for. To imitate Jesus perfectly, amen, and also to imitate Joseph. Because in chapters 44 and 45, I think we have an extraordinary illustration of the power of forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.